You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a three-part series of messages entitled Ruth and Boaz, A Love Story that J. Vernon McGee presented at Founders Week 1982. Then we'll close the week with a two-part message on Job, God's Example, from Founders Week 1980. J. Vernon McGee was a pastor, Bible teacher, theologian, and speaker on the Through the Bible radio program. Now here is J. Vernon McGee on Today in the Word Radio. Now we saw in the little book of Ruth, we were in the land of Moab. And out of that land came this woman by the name of Ruth, a remarkable person. I think that she's one of the great women of the Scripture, been greatly neglected. And as far as I'm concerned, I've never been able to find anything wrong with her. I'm not trying to say she's sinless, because she's not. But uh, if you do find something that mars her, why, you let me know. One man said she stepped on the corns of Boaz, and, uh, <laughs> but I don't think that that was bad for her to do that. And in chapter 2, we were in the fields of Boaz where she went to glean. And when she returned home, we saw last time that uh, she came back and told her mother-in-law, but I didn't get to deal with actually the thing that's the very key of the book, and that is the kinsman redeemer, the Hebrew Goel. And the book of Ruth illustrates it, and as far as I know, it's the only book in the Bible that does. And the kinsman redeemer is a very important subject. I'd like to drop back to chapter 2 to tie the strings together and look at that a moment. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not withheld his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us one of our next kinsmen. And she's now calling attention to the fact that he occupies a unique position. Because he is a, a kinsman, he evidently w was a nephew of her first, of her husband that had died. And there was a law that concerned the kinsman redeemer. And I'm going to briefly turn to it. It is in Leviticus. And it pertains to property, and it pertains to people. First of all, it pertains to property. God so arranged for his people that no family could ever lose the home place. The property that God had given them at the beginning would stay in the family in per perpetuity. It could, would never be taken away. And in other words, no insurance company or savings and loan could get your house and your home. Be impossible. And God built it, and all of this was adapted to an agricultural people. If seven days you're to work, seventh day is rest for man. Seven years, the seventh year, the land is to rest. And every seven sevens, there comes a 50th year, and that's the year of Jubilee. And in that year, 
all mortgages are canceled and the property goes back to the original family. And if a man had sold himself into slavery, he'd be free. Now, it's a long ways uh, between 50 years. Man can waste quite a bit of time if he just gets himself, loses his property at the beginning of a jubilee and uh, sells himself into slavery. So God had the law of the kinsman redeemer. And over in the, 20, uh, the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus, and I'm going to be very brief with this here, 25th chapter, 25th verse. If thy brother hath become poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. Now, if a man has lost his property for some reason, maybe because of his carelessness, not good business judgment, but he has a, a brother or he has some relative, it would have to be a kinsman, he could come and pay off the mortgage for him. And uh, it's very wonderful uh, to have that kind of a relative when you find yourself in debt and find yourself you've lost your property and it could be restored to you. And then a man might not only lose his property, he might sell himself into slavery. Over in the 47th verse, uh, God had a law for that. And if a sojourner or stranger become rich by thee, and thy brother who dwelleth by him become poor and sell himself into the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the foreigner's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. You see, if, if, 40, if 49 years till they get the jubilee, it's wonderful to have an uncle coming down the road with his checkbook out, paying off whatever you had to pay to, to get into slavery or, or got for getting into slavery. You, you might have done it to save your family. But this was God's provision for his people. So it's quite obvious that the kinsman redeemer is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. We want to emphasize that today. Uh, he has actually not only redeemed us, those that have trusted him, but he's redeemed this earth on which you and I live. The curse of sins on this earth. And uh, when I came in on that plane in that snow blizzard, I was very conscious of the fact that the curse of sins on this earth in which we live, man, well, the nature can be rough, you know. And uh, so that man, man today is living in a world that's cursed by sin. Now the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. It's waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And this earth is going to be restored to its pristine beauty. And uh, at the time that God's people are redeemed, and I take it that's the beginning of the millennium. 
but I'm not going into prophecy today. All I'm trying to say is that the kinsman redeemer has redeemed the property, and he's redeemed our persons. We've been sold under sin, and a price, as we've already emphasized, has been paid for us. We've been redeemed with a price. We were sold under sin. And uh, therefore, the Lord Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Now, we are seeing this enacted out in a simple story of a man and a woman. He's a very noble man, outstanding man. I don't know why he hasn't received more recognition. I don't know why we go for the rascals in the Bible. We like to talk about David, you know, and his sin, and Abraham, uh, you know, running off to Egypt, and, and uh, Simon Peter. We like to major in his faults. But uh, why not take a noble man like this man Boaz? In the days of the judges, he's outstanding. And a woman like the Ruth, a foreigner, come into Israel, and uh, she's made her way, and she has a wonderful reputation. And if you find anything wrong with her, well, let me know. Now, we left off last time. Ruth and Boaz were walking up each afternoon into the city of Bethlehem and out of the fields of Boaz where she was gleaning. And it was quite obvious that he was in love with her. Little town was buzzing. And uh, they would stop at the gate. Naomi would look out the window and see this poor fellow that he is actually strapped. He cannot propose to her. She has to make the first move. She's in a unique position. And I want you to see today two things that will help us understand as we're going to move into the threshing floor of Boaz. One is to understand a very strange law. And don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor, because this law, he had to have a sense of humor to give a law like this. And, uh, and yet it was given to protect the family and to protect womanhood. And then we need to understand what the threshing floor was in that day. And then we'll appreciate what took place there. Now, I want to turn back to Deuteronomy, uh, the 25th chapter. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture there that, to me, is, is humorous. may not be to you, but I find a lot of humor in the Bible, and God has a wonderful sense of humor. He made a lot of us. <laughs> now, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, now will you listen to this law? This is why God protected the family and the property. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry outside the family unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she beareth shall succeed in the name of the brother who's dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. Now that was a marvelous arrangement God had. 
Here's a man that has a, a farm, large farm. He has cattle, has sheep, and he's raising grain, and he dies. Now, the widow can't take care of that property. What can she do? Well, she can reach out to any one of his brothers, any one of the uncles, any one of the cousins, and say, you are it. Uh, I've, I've chosen you. Uh, she makes the move. The, the man does not move. She moves. And now, will you notice? She suppose she picks a, a brother, and he says, wait a minute. I don't want to marry her. Well, does he have any recourse at all? Yes, but it's not a very good out that God gave him. Here it is. And if the man desire not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, that was the courthouse of that day, the, the gate of the city, of a walled city. That was where the, the court met. My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. She can hail him into court and say, he refuses. And now you talk about women's lib, they don't have it as good as this. Uh, may I say to you, it looks like instead of the Bible being a man's book, it's a woman's book. She's the one protected here. Then notice, then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I desire not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who hath his shoe loosed. You'll be old barefoot from now on. <laughs> And not many men would want to bear that. They would probably marry the girl, you see. So you see the tremendous advantage that they had. And can't you see how that helped the family together? Here's a family living up in the Ephraim country. There are about seven boys in the family. And one evening, one of the boys gets down the lantern and lights it and starts down the road. And the brothers look at each other and say, where's he going? And uh, none of them know. And one says, you suppose he told dad? And they go ask the dad, and he said, no, we don't know where he went. So they wait, and long about 10, 11 o'clock that night, they hear him coming down the road whistling. And so they, uh, uh, they wait, and they make some inquiry, but they get no satisfaction. And so they let it pass. But the next night, he gets the lantern down again, goes down the road. And he does that for two or three evenings. And uh, finally, one evening, why, he goes down the road and, with the lantern, and he comes back later that night and he's singing. And uh, 
their brother, other brothers are waiting for him. They've been making inquiry. When they come in, they said, uh, where you been? He said, I've been down the road. They said, that's obvious, but where did you go when you went down the road? Oh, he said, I just went down the road. Well, we understand a new family moved in down the way. Yes, he said, I understand that too. Well, uh, was it possible that you were visiting that family? And uh, he said, yes, I believe in the good neighbor policy, so I've been down visiting them. We noticed that there's a girl in the family. Is it possible that you visited the young lady? Oh, yes, he said. Come to think of it, that is the reason that I went down there. And he said, uh, and tonight she accepted my proposal. And now they're going to have a real family hurdle and huddle. They're going to really talk the thing over. They say to him, first of all, are you in good health? And we want you to go to the clinic and get a full physical exam because we've seen the girl and we don't want to marry her. <laughs> so you better stay healthy. Don't you see how that drew the families together? I Brother's not going to run way over at the other side of Israel and marry some girl they don't know anything about. The families were kept together by this very strange law, and the Lord must have, must have smiled when he gave it to them, but it sure helped the families together. Now, Naomi is now going to begin to act. Ruth is doing nothing. She's wearing those widow's weeds, and every afternoon there stands Boaz, He's definitely in love. And so in chapter 3, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? And that rest is the same that she mentioned in chapter 1, which was a marriage. But it reminds us of our kinsman redeemer, who says to us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you the rest of redemption, the rest of salvation. And, and now Naomi says, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. You're not moving. You're not doing anything. So I want you now to act upon this law that God has given us. My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Now she says, and now is not Boaz of our kindred, he's your kinsman redeemer, with whose maidens thou wast, behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Naomi says, you're not doing anything, and I'm going to do something for you. And I want you to start moving now and claim Boaz as your kinsman redeemer. You will have to do that. Now, according to the Mosaic law, she had a perfect right to do that. He is a kinsman, and we have been told he's a mighty man of wealth. He's able to redeem, and we've discovered, I hope, that he's willing to redeem. And what a, what a kinsman redeemer we've got, by the way. May I say to you that for love, he came in 
paid a tremendous price for us. Now will you notice she's going to tell her what she's to do. There are four things here that are mentioned, and I'd like for you to notice them very carefully. Wash thyself therefore. I want you to take a bath. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. And when you and I come to Christ, for these are the steps by which we come, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you and I come to Christ, we are washed. The, the washing of the Spirit of God, cleansing us, and then the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That is, as we will see, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The first thing you to do when you come to Christ, you come to him that he may cleanse you. You're a sinner, and you have to come to him for cleansing and for forgiveness. Now will you notice the second thing? and anoint thyself. And what she's saying to her, I want you to get out that bottle of perfume that my son gave you before he died when you had your first anniversary, and you haven't been using that bottle of perfume, and you use it, and use a generous portion of it, by the way. And I can let you in on something. I don't think you'll find this in any commentary, but I can give you the name of the perfume. The, the name of the perfume is Midnight in Moab. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely perfume? It's very exotic, as you can see. And when you and I come to Christ, we're told that there is an anointing and that anointing is something that I don't know, we don't dwell on it very much today, but I think we ought to. Over in 1 John, second chapter, he says in verse 20, But ye have an unction, or an anointing, from the Holy One, and ye know all things. And then he is afraid we'd miss it. And in verse 27, he says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is true, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And that, I believe, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you and I come to Christ, the Holy Spirit not only regenerates us, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Holy Spirit baptizes us. We, by the baptism, he puts us in the body of believers. By one Spirit, are we all baptized into one body? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When I'm asked the question, have you received the baptism, I always say yes. And of course, I always ask, when did you receive it? The moment I trusted Christ, the moment that you trust Christ and you're regenerated, you're also indwelt by the Spirit of God. And I don't know why today, but we're so sensitive about that. We like to talk about Jesus, and we get so familiar 
but we begin to talk about the very fact we're being indwelt by the Spirit of God, I don't know, we become very sensitive, and maybe we shouldn't talk about it. But Paul had to say to those carnal Corinthians, he said, What? Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? God doesn't dwell a building anymore, but he's in this building, for he indwells every believer that is here. And that does something for you that I wished I'd have got it sooner. I came along late out of a non-Christian home. I never saw a Bible or heard a prayer in my home, and I went to seminary. All these boys could quote verses of Scripture. I found out they didn't know too much, but they sure had a good front. And they gave me an inferiority complex, and I had to get busy and do some studying that I hadn't been doing. And I, t I tell you, uh, I found out that they, they seemed to know so much. And when I first began preaching, just let a man come in with gray hair, and it frightened me to death. I'd say, my, that saint knows everything, and I know nothing. But when I found out I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that simply means, as I understand it, that you are now given a capacity to understand divine truth, that you're able to take in divine truth, that you now, by the adoption, have been brought into the family as a son was brought into a Roman family. He went through a ceremony of adoption, and now he's a full-grown son. When you're brought into the family of God, you're a babe in Christ, of course, but you're also a full-grown son. He's made you that by letting you be indwelt by the Spirit of God. And today, that's something quite wonderful. And, and so th this woman, Naomi, says, anoint yourself. Get that perfume out and use a generous portion of it. And then she says, put thy raiment upon thee. And I think what she's saying is that little party dress that you used to wear before your husband, my son, died. You, uh, you and he would wear it to a party, and you haven't been wearing it. And if Boaz fell in love with you wearing widow's weeds, wait till he sees you in a party dress. <laughs> I tell you, wait till he sees you really dressed up. And you know, friends, there's something else that's quite wonderful for you and me. You and I are given a robe of righteousness when we come to Christ, and some of us today just don't think we need it. And I don't know why, because I, the saints today, so many feel like they've got it made. We don't have it made. How are you going to stand in the presence of God? He's holy, and we are not. John Bunyan, old Baptist John Bunyan, walked through the fields at night, and he said, I do not see myself just as a sinner. I see myself as sin from the crown of my head to the sole of my feet. And this man was as wicked as they ever came. When that man moved into one of the pubs of that day, the, the worst of them moved out. They did not like to hear his language. And John Bunyan said, how can I stand before God? And then one night going through the field, that verse in Philippians came to him, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness 
which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And old John Bunyan said he reached out and he took that righteousness. And now he said, clothed in that righteousness, I can stand before God. You see, Christ not only subtracts sin from us, he adds righteousness to us. That's what he says in Romans, the third chapter, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there's no difference. He says that it's like a robe of righteousness, and that's what it is, that that comes down unto all. It's available today. If you don't have it, it's available to you. It comes down unto all. You want to stand before God? You can't stand in your own righteousness, but he's got a robe for you, and you will be accepted in the Beloved when you stand complete in Christ that robe of righteousness. It comes down unto all, but upon all that believe. And all that you have to do to be saved is believe. You are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith plus nothing. You don't add to that. And that robe of righteousness comes down upon you and enables you to stand before God simply through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the robe that we're talking about here and how wonderful it is. Now, that's, that's the third thing, but I want you to notice something else here. And get thee down to the floor. I, I think Naomi was a little impatient with Ruth. said, you have been coming up every afternoon you have shown no evidence at all that you want to claim this man as your kinsman redeemer. Now you get down to the floor and claim him as your kinsman redeemer. We talk today so much about we love Jesus. Have you really claimed him as your kinsman redeemer? There are a lot of church members today that have gone through the ritual of saying, I believe, yes, I believe, I believe. Don't know what, but they believe. And, uh, but they really have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Never have they said to him, I claim you as my kinsman redeemer. I claim you as my kinsman redeemer. And, uh, that's what this woman had to do. That's what you and I have to do. And I say that, and I don't mean to be ugly about it, but you'd be amazed today on radio how many letters we're receiving from church members who will start listening to the Word of God and then come to the place, I, I didn't know it, but I wasn't even a Christian. I had a letter just before I left from a man he says, I've been an officer in the church. I taught a Sunday school class, and I thought I was as good as anybody in my town. But he said, you told me I was a sinner, <laughs> and I thought you were wrong. But he said, I see now that I was a lost sinner, and I had never really claimed Christ as my kinsman redeemer. 
If you haven't done it, you ought to do it. Claim him as your kinsman redeemer. Yes, Lord Jesus, you paid the price for me. You love me. I'll trust you. I'll trust you. I, uh, I do that all the time. Somebody says, well, don't you have the uh, assurance of your salvation? Yes, I do. Don't you believe in the security of the believer? Yes, I, I do that. But sometimes the devil, you know, he says to me, McGee, who do you think you are? Uh, maybe you're not a Christian. And I say, well, wait a minute, Mr. Devil, don't run off because I want you to witness to the fact right here and now I take him as my kinsman redeemer. I trust him. I, I don't want to be any doubt around anywhere. I want to make sure. I want to make sure. Now, will you notice? I must move on. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. He'll tell thee what thou shalt do. Now let's look at that threshing floor for just a moment. That threshing floor was a very happy place. It was a religious place, and it was on a high place. You see, they had to bring the grain up to the top of the hill where the wind would blow when they would pitch it into the air, and the chaff would blow away, and the good grain would fall down. And the wine press was always put down at the bottom of the hill because it would be crazy to carry all the grapes up top of the hill when you didn't need to win. But you need to win for threshing. And the grain was taken to the top of the hill. And the threshing floor was there. It was uh, uh, generally a very crude thing in many ways. It was dirt that was packed down, rocks around it. Then the ox would walk out the grain. And in that land, and I can testify to this because I, I tried it, in Jerusalem, we stayed on the, on the Arab side. That was uh, before they, the Israel took the entire city. And every afternoon, I'd go out and wait for the wind to come up. Always comes up in the afternoon. And it will blow sometimes till sundown and sometimes till way in the night. But it always comes up in the afternoon. And in that day, they would bring the grain to the top of the hill. And when the wind would begin to blow, well, they would uh, start the, the thrashing of the grain. And the families would come out. The families of all those that were connected with the field, those that were connected with the field of Boaz, they would, all of the workers, they would come out that are going to help in the thrashing of the grain. And it was the families would, they would, uh, you know, around the grain, they would camp. There wasn't any Ramada inns or holiday inns then, so they just camped all around the grain, and the families were there. And when the wind would lie, they'd have a big feast. And it was a religious feast. They would thank God. That's where the nature psalms came in. Can't you see them out there on a the hill uh, thrashing the grain? And now they're having the feast. The wind has gone down. And look up the heavens, declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It was a regular religious service. And so 
uh, after they had eaten, then the men would bed down around the grain like spokes in a wheel, their head toward the grain, because marauders, robbers would come in and, and steal. And so they would stay there to protect the grain. And uh, the families would all be around. Now this is the scene that's before us. Uh, Naomi is telling Ruth to go down to the threshing floor and don't make a big thing of it. No, it's no big deal. Don't do this publicly, but you wait until the threshing is over. You wait until the feast is over. And when he goes to lie down, then this is what you're to do. Now, will you, will you notice this? And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I'll do. Uh, she is following Naomi's instructions, and Naomi's not asking her to do anything that is even questionable. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And, and of course, he had no family. There'd be no family out there by his. The other workers, their families would be there. And you mark where he lies down, his head toward the grain, his feet out. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. And uh, if you think in your mind that Ruth is going to bed with Boaz, then you got a dirty mind. That's not here. That's not what she's doing. He has his feet poked out, and she lies down with her feet poked toward his feet. And she is to wait until he awakes that she can claim him. It came to pass at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. What happened was he had that cloak there, and he reached down. It gets cool during the night. That's a desert-like land. And uh, he reaches down to get his cloak, and instead of two feet being down there, there are four feet down there. And there would never been four feet down there before. So uh, he's uh, uh, startled by this for he doesn't have, have the foggiest notion what's taken place. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. You are my kinsman redeemer. And I want to say to you, I can't think of a lovelier way for her to do this. I say Naomi is really a matchmaker. She really she knows her way around. This, this was great. She said to Boaz, you are my kinsman redeemer. I claim you as my kinsman redeemer. And, and of course, he's disgruntled over all of this and unhappy about it. Will you listen to him? And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. In other words, you'd think he's a shouting Methodist here. Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. 
She had been a mystery to Bethlehem. Uh, when she arrived there, and she's a, a very beautiful girl, very attractive, and uh, the gossips said at first, she'll be chasing the boys. She'll be chasing the men. You can be sure of that. But she didn't. And that was amazing to them. She did not. I say this woman is a remarkable woman, by the way. You, it, she didn't go after them. And Boaz had noted that. And that's another reason. He didn't know whether she was interested or not in, in him. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Isn't that a testimony for that girl? And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How hast thou fared, my daughter? And she uh, told her all that the man had done to her. Now, all she has to do is to let this man uh, work, work this matter out. Naomi tells her, You just sit still right here. Now, then went Boaz, and I come now to chapter 4 in the heart and home of Boaz, and let me just hit two or three high points, and I'll be through. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat down there. And he's going to get this other kinsman, and he knows sometime during the morning that kinsman will either be coming out or coming in because he has fields also. And uh, he'll, it's the thrashing season. And so when he came out, I think Boaz was sitting there rather dozing, wondering whether man's going to come or not. And all of a sudden he sees him go by him and, and uh, hears him walking on the, uh, the rocks that were there. And uh, Boaz jumped up and he says, Ho, such a one. And uh, somebody says, didn't he know him? Well, of course he knew him. But at times when we're startled, we can't think of a person's name. I have trouble uh, these days thinking even my own name at times, and sometimes I even forget the name of my wife. So in, in a time of excitement, you can forget, and that's exactly, Boaz is exciting, be sure of that. And by the way, a man down in Florida said to me that this is probably the first mention of a Chinese in the Bible, and it's Ho, such a one. Wow. I don't like it either. <laughs> and now Boaz is getting down to business. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And those ten men now are going to be the judges and witnesses. And I'm sure they're saying to themselves, Here it is, the thrashing season, and Boaz has got a case that he wants to try. What in the world's happened to the man? Can he wait till the threshing season is over? And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, who is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a plot of land which was our brother Elimelech's. You see, they had lost their property, and it's not the year of Jubilee, and a kinsman will have to redeem it. And I thought to tell thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Now, the other kinsmen did not know what all was involved, and very candidly, Boaz is being very clever at this point. He just mentions the property. Now he says, I forgot to tell you, then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. I forgot to tell you about this little foreign girl and a little Moabite woman. She's a Moabitish damsel. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. He says, I can't redeem it. Now, I take it he was an older man and had grown children, and because of that, uh, if he married again, especially this little foreign girl, it would, uh, it would jeopardize the inheritance of his own children. He wouldn't be able to redeem. To me, this other kinsman represents the law. The law had the first opportunity to redeem man. Paul said if there if a law could have saved man, God would have given that law. And God tried man out with the law at first. It didn't work. And because the law can't redeem us. The law can't redeem us because the law demands perfection, and we can't produce it. And the law demands it and will not accept anything less, and therefore God could not save us by law. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right for thyself, for I cannot redeem, uh, cannot redeem it. And now this was the manner and form of time in Israel concerning redeeming, concerning changing, to confirm all things. A man took off his shoe, gave it to his neighbor. This was a testament in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thyself. So he drew off his shoe. Uh, the, I'm glad they didn't spit in his face. Uh, they didn't go through that part of it. Didn't need to here. And I'm prepared now to give this man a name. I've given him everybody else a name. Who is host such a one? Well, he's old barefoot. The law is barefoot. It, it, only the gospel puts uh, shoes on our feet. Only gospel enables us to walk through this world. And only the gospel can enable us to live. And Boaz said unto the elders, to all the people, your witnesses this day, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kylian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife. He paid a price. And I have a notion, silver was the, uh, the, uh, the medium of redemption, and I have a notion that this man paid a tremendous price in order to get this girl, this, because she's a Moabite. And now he's going to bring her into his heart and into his home, his wife, and now she is going to be there. How did she get there? But uh, Yes, she was beautiful and all of that, but somebody extended grace to her. Somebody loved her. Somebody provided a redemption for her. That's the picture of you and me. Now, I want to close this morning, or this afternoon. I hope it doesn't go into the morning. Uh, I want to conclude with this. Uh, Jim Gwynn asked me 
to read this. I had read this in the prayer room to those that were there. And I'd just like to read it to you. It's a letter that we received uh, some time ago, in fact, back in, in December. And uh, it, uh, it comes from Wiseman, Alaska. And will you listen to this letter? Because it illustrates the little book of Ruth that God today is still working in hearts and lives. It says, This letter has been a long time coming. For it was six years ago that your radio broadcast started having an effect on my life. I live in a small village, 12 people, 90 miles north of the Arctic Circle. We depend on radio as a vital link to the outside world, as we have no TV or newspapers. Mail comes in twice a month by a small plane. I used to tune in to KJNP North Pole, Alaska, to listen to the news and weather, but sometimes you would be on, so I'd listen just for kicks. My husband used to laugh at you, too. We'd make fun of your quaint cowboy accent, and it's not a cowboy accent, but as the, the months went by, something happened. My heart became warmed by the Word of God. And friends, when you live 90 miles north of the Arctic Circle, the, 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 word, the Word of God is the only thing that warm your heart, I'll tell you that. And she says, your broadcast helped me to see that salvation was of grace. When I finally did trust Christ as Savior, it was just as He promised. I was born again. Old things had passed away. There was no other believers around, so your broadcast was the meat and milk that helped me grow in my newfound faith. I think my husband Ross trusted Jesus too, for he told me very sincerely one day that he believed Jesus died for his sins, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Unfortunately, only a few days after that, he shot himself. It hurt terribly to lose Ross. But I knew that God still had a purpose for my life, Romans 8:28. Your broadcast really meant a lot to me then. It was like you were a friend sitting in my cabin with me, opening up the truths in God's treasure book. Your sense of humor was a great comfort, too. Your broadcast has not only touched my life, though. My neighbor Eva, a lovely Eskimo woman, was visiting with her two children. We were visiting over a cup of tea when your broadcast came on, but the reception was terrible. The kids were making a lot of noise, pretending they were airplanes and snow machines. I didn't even think Eva could hear you, much less was she paying attention. But something in God's Word struck a chord with her. The next day, she was down by the creek filling her water bucket. It was a glorious fall day in the mountains. But what struck me most of all was the radiance in Eva's face. She said, calling this girl by name, something wonderful has happened to me. I know that God is alive. She shared how Christ had become real for her last night. Eva had heard what you said about hell as a place of utter darkness and loneliness. She saw herself in need of the Savior to keep her from that awful place. Eva is faithfully teaching her boys to love Jesus too. 
May I say to you that this woman, that this letter goes back, you see, six years when she first started listening, she went to Wyoming to the, uh, the Big Sky Bible Institute there. She's a graduate. She's gone back up now to witness in her little town, only 12 people there, and the man that rides uh, the, the pipeline uh, of, uh, in Alaska, uh, that the oil's coming through as a helicopter, he was on our tour to Hawaii this past year, and he told me, he says, I know the town. It's the meanest town in the world. And she's gone back to witness that, and then she's going as a missionary to North Africa. Friends, you know, uh, I believe today one of the greatest ways of getting out the Word of God is by radio. And that's the reason that I think Moody is moving in the direction that they'll reach more people in any other way today. And I think it's the, it's the one way of reaching three-fifths of the world's population today that are back of some kind of curtain, iron curtain, a bamboo curtain, a Persian rug curtain, poverty curtain. They're they are there, and they have not heard. They can hear, and they can hear today by radio, and radio is effective. It does reach hearts, probably more than it would personally. You couldn't pay me to go to Alaska. I wouldn't go up there under any circumstance, but I thank God that by radio, you can go into that little cabin and witness to that woman, and now she's going as a missionary to Africa. May I say to you, wonderful things are happening today. I think this is the greatest day in the history of the world to live and to get out the Word of God. There's a revival in India today. There's a revival in Africa. The Muslim world has been cracked, and the Word of God's getting in there today. The, uh, uh, Dr. Fahm, uh, who is our voice for the, through the Bible in Arabic, spoke uh, six months ago in Cairo to 2,000 young Muslim, young men that have accepted Christ as Savior and are having a prayer meeting. I tell you, these are great days to live in, and these are days that we'd like for them to know about the story of Boaz and Ruth, and we hope that it's warmed your heart too today. May the Lord bless you. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of three messages J. Vernon McGee presented on Ruth and Boaz, a love story at Founders Week 1982. J. Vernon McGee was a pastor, Bible teacher, theologian, and speaker on the Through the Bible radio program. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.